Welcome back to another Romeo Carey podcast. So from the archive, I'm pulling another interview. This is an interview on my father, Timothy Carey, from, you know, the interesting thing about the Timothy Carey documentaries is a couple of versions that exist. I've been uh, to a multitude of film festivals invited all over Europe and Australia and other other parts of the world. And uh, uh, it's allowed me to kind of do different versions. And I'm always interviewing. been working on it since the 90s, actually late 80s, early 90s. Anyway, uh, this story comes by way of uh, getting a call from New York and somebody trying to track down uh, the world's greatest sinner. And the call came in the 80s. Somebody tracked me down, found found out that this is like the number that is tied to this movie. And anyway, I got a call from somebody who I didn't know. It happened to be a you know a real movie enthusiast, a, a you know really a, cineph- a cinephile, and uh, and more than that, he's also a music uh, you know a music file. He was into into music. So anyway, long story short, he ends up making his way from New York to California, strictly to track down the movie because I wasn't going to give it to him. And I, you know, if he wanted to see it, he can come and see it at the studio. So he did. He came out and he saw it at the studio, and we were fast friends. And he's really become my kind of publicist, my East Coast publicist. He's handled the film on a lot of occasions. He handled it. Um, once for a, a big screening at the uh, uh, Rockefeller Center, and uh, uh, you know, multitude of events going across the country, and and uh, uh, so I've had a, you know, I think it was three different opportunities to interview him. This interview took place in uh, 2018, I think it was. It's going to be inside. It'll it'll be marked inside the documentary. But just a sweet guy and a, and someone who worked as a publicist did a lot of radio uh, advertising and uh, interviews for the commercial movie junkets. And uh, uh, we've become you know really good friends over the years. And so I'm going to put this out there because it's a it's a little interesting uh, take on. You know, someone following an actor and, you know, tracking them down and how meaningful movies really are to people's lives. And, you know, it's had an effect on his life, but how a movie can have an effect on somebody's life. And uh, I just had Walter out recently for a big party at TCM. He was part of the, uh, uh, they did a tribute to my father uh, in Hollywood at a big, you know, the, the Turner Movie Classic Film Festival, and who made the guest list along with, you know, star-studded uh, movies was The World's Greatest Sinner and uh, and uh, me on the guest list with a couple friends, and he was one of them. So, without further ado, Walter Ochner and his interview for. The uh, the world's greatest sinner, Timothy Carey documentary. Take it away. 
it's it's really. I mean, you really, you know, it, it, I think at least what you're going to want to talk about is just how the, this film came from 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 being made up to the point where, you know, it, people actually started to see it because nobody got to see it, right? Right. What happens when it when it screens? Let's let's take it to when TCM happened. Bring us back to when actually the first time it ever premiered on TCM. What was that like? Because this is actually the world. Kind of the television premiere. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was a big deal. Let's yeah. Talk, let's talk about that. Yeah. Okay. Anytime you're ready. Yeah. Um, so the film gets shown on Turner Classic Movies. Think about that for a minute. The same channel that shows Casablanca, the same channel that shows The Ten Commandments, all the greatest films ever made, the biggest and most prestigious channel for film decides they're going to show the world's greatest sinner. Now, how do you wrap your mind about that one? Here's a film that was so obscure that nobody saw it, even after it was completed, has become this legendary thing that became almost like a being unto itself with the advent of the internet, it had been written about in magazines and fanzines and fan-type things, mostly by people that had never seen it, or if they did see it, they saw a really bad copy of it. And then the internet explodes. And all of a sudden, you type in Timothy Carey, and there's all these websites devoted to him, all these people writing about this film most of whom had not even seen it. And if they had seen it, it wasn't even that great a copy. But it didn't matter. So then you get this snowball effect. All of a sudden, what becomes a few articles turns into many articles, turns into hundreds of articles, turns into entire websites devoted to him, to, to his craft, to the films that he made. But yet, who got to see World's Greatest Sinner? It wasn't out there. And Turner Classic Movies decides they're going to show this as part of their underground. And that was probably, in my view, the highlight of my life, was seeing this film broadcast on a major network for millions of people around the world to see. And I just couldn't wait. I could not wait. The days seemed like they dragged out forever. And then finally we all sat down in my place, turned on the TV, and there it was in a restored print in all its glory. And that was just absolutely incredible. And I started getting phone calls from people that I knew that I told about this. And they were just absolutely beside themselves. They had finally gotten to see what I had been talking about for so many years. And they were telling me, you're right. You're absolutely right. It was as great as you said it would be. 
you know, that's pretty, that's, that's really something, you know, that's really something, man, that, that was just, you know, you, you don't expect that to happen, you know, that's, that's like winning the lottery, that's like winning the, the grand prize. What do you make of Zappa's soundtrack? It is so sleazy. It's dirty, sleazy. It's everything that Zappa was back in, in, in that period. You know, it's just this, you know, saxophone, just really downright dirty, uh, you know, music. And then on, uh, over that, you've got the classical stuff that he, he did. So you've got, like, you know, some, like, really deep, uh, you know, soundtrack music that goes along with the dirty rock and roll. You got this, you know, you've got, like, Zappa, orchestral Zappa scoring film. That's incredible, you know? That's amazing. And the guy was, like, 15 years old he made this, you know? And never mind that he, you know, went on Steve Allen and, and you know, tore it down and disparaged it and stuff like that i mean no let's face it frank zappa would not you know put out such great music if it was such a as crappy a film as he said it was that was just frank zappa just being a jerk because you know he wanted to be the smart aleck and stuff but you know it, it, he gave him his first break and you know what zappa delivered zappa delivered with the music Zappa delivered with the uh, orchestration. You watch that movie and listen to the music as it plays, and it is just, you know, it makes the hairs on, on your arm stand on end. It is so dark and so mysterious. It perfectly matches the mood to the film. And, uh, you know, I can't even imagine anybody else doing that kind of music for that film. It's absolutely spot on. Um, uh, tell us about now the culmination of uh, all that where it dials down to the TCM Film Festival so we show the, the, the film uh, on Turner Classic Movies and then you know I, I thought that was it that's probably about as, as, as high up as we go and uh, after that, you know, probably a few more festivals, maybe a, a, a DVD down the line, and then, you know, that's it for that. But the film has a life of its own. It doesn't want to die. And, you know, then we have the election of the president. And how interesting that this film mirrors so much of the stuff that, that's been going on since it was made. Um, the cult of personality, the rise of the rock god and their fervent fans, the rise of cults uh, you know, with their followers, um, how politics became manipulated in such a sinister way. I mean, so many things that this film talked about came true. 
um, leaders having affairs and, and, you know, the dark stuff that goes on behind the scenes. I mean, this was all stuff that was just, you know, it, it wasn't even, like, considered when it was first made. But now you look at this film and you think, wow, it really predicted something. And it became more relevant than ever. And Turner decides they want to show it now. They want to show it during their film festival. And they want to show this film alongside films like The Producers, The Ten Commandments, Animal House, uh, Sunset Boulevard, uh, The Odd Couple. I mean, all these amazing films. And you think about how in the history of cinema, from the time it ever it first started, at the turn of the 1900s, all the way till this point, how many films have been made? How many films have been created in that span of time? Hundreds, if not thousands, perhaps millions of films. And out of all the films that they picked for this festival, next to those films... They picked The World's Greatest Sinner. The only self-made independent film was shown during this festival. I mean, that just speaks volumes. I think the, uh, the public really needed to see this film because of what's been going on. I think that it makes you think about things in a way that you normally won't. And it's just amazing to me that, you know, such prestigious film festival and alongside films that are considered, you know, the greatest ever made, this film stands alongside them because it is one of the greatest films ever made. And if you haven't seen it, then you owe it to yourself to see it. And I've seen it a million times, no joke. And I still find things about that film that are new to me. I still catch some of these jokes and some of these little little quirks that uh, escaped me. I mean, the film just blossoms with every viewing, in my view. So, yeah, Turner, Turner really, really elevated the status of this film now. This film stands next to some of the greatest films ever made. And there are a lot of great films that were never included. So, yeah, we really, uh, we really hit a mountaintop there. What do you, what do you think the, the, what do you, what do you think of Timothy Carey today? Where, where does, where does he stand in the, the scheme of things? Remember when we showed it in New York at the, um, they compared, there, there was a Clint Eastwood film playing, and the, the Village Voice had an article comparing Saints, uh, Saints. Saints and Sinners. Saints and Sinners, yeah. Yeah. And they completely panned uh, Clint Eastwood's film and said, why can't you make a film like The World's Greatest Sinner? It was like, what, it was, it was beautiful that they brought that into contemporary time comparing it to like what real filmmaking was you know at least they weren't s- selling me schlock 
they were actually giving me the real deal, and I walked away with a, a true experience. You know, it, it's it's films are so contrived. You know, a films usually are made more for commercial reasons than for artistic reasons. You know, or if if the artistic reason is there, it becomes you know prostituted. It becomes diminished. Uh, it becomes um, used, and what's the word I'm thinking of? I'm gonna I'm gonna start over again because of that. Um, let me start all over again. I'm trying to think of the word that I'm trying to say. What's the word that, that, that uh, you know, when you, when you comprom compromise? Compromise. There we go. You know, the thing about films is that, you know, people always think that there's an artistic, you know, uh, try it again. You know, when people watch films, Oftentimes, they're presented to them as some sort of an artistic vision of somebody's. And we have this kind of uh, romantic view of movies. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, movie making is a commercial business like anything else. And the idea is to get as many people in to see the film and to buy the film and to buy all the stuff associated with the film uh, as possible. So to do that, you know, the original idea might be very, very pure and might be very, very, uh, uh, you know, clear. But then it goes into the machine and the committee and things are altered and things are changed and things are compromised. And what you're left with is something that generally isn't what the original author or writer thought about or envisioned because you know it's a business and so you have people like Clint Eastwood that make a film and the people that make the film they will you know they want to make as much money as possible and to make as much money as possible you follow formulas you follow formulas and you follow certain norms and you know, that's what gets people in. And, and it becomes this whole thing that is as far removed from the artistic vision as possible. And then you got The World's Greatest Sinner, which completely ignored all of that. He made a film that he didn't care if you liked it or not. He didn't care how many people would see it. He didn't care about, you know, whether or not it would be well-received and if it would make a lot of money. He didn't care. He made the film for the best possible reason, which was for himself. This was going to be his film, and this was going to be the movie that was going to represent what he was feeling at the time. He saw what was going on in the world. The world was in a very, very screwed up place, but it was all very, very cleaned up and sanitized and kept under wraps because that's what, what it was like in those days. That's why when you watch television, everything is very milquetoast. And... 
he decided, no, I'm going to do what I want to do my way. And for him to do that, he couldn't go to the studios because they wouldn't back him. He couldn't go to anybody else. So who was he going to turn to? He had to turn to himself. He had to turn to his family. He had to turn to his friends. And he said, I'm going to make this film against all odds. That's the best possible reason to make a movie. And that's what makes this movie so powerful. Because this movie was not made with any consideration except what he wanted to make and how he made it. And it didn't come out as well as he wanted to because of lack of money or lack of resource and stuff like that. But he made up for that in creativity. And that's what makes the film so interesting. Because look at the opening credits. Look at the end credits. Look at how the film progresses and look at how it's framed and filmed. Look at the artistic touches that he adds to it. The lighting is absolutely amazing in some spots. The uh, concepts are completely out there and not like anything that's ever been done. So at that time, in that era, to make this kind of movie, you couldn't make a film like this during any other time in our history and have it be as effective as it was and as pointed as it was. This film was the real deal, and this is why the film stands up. Other films are dated, but this film can still offend. This film can still inspire. This film can still touch the imagination, and it stays with you. You may like it. You might not like it. You're not going to forget it, and that's the biggest thing about this film that makes it so great.
is one of the great eccentric character actors of all time. Wild actor that basically you shoot him and it's like, you know, you send it to the lab, it's like worth developing, all right? You, you got something, all right? Uh, and uh, Tim Carey is just a wonderful touchstone to the kind of filmmaking I wanted to do. What year was that? That's a good question. I would say it's about 2000. Yeah, it was probably about 2000 or, or between 2000 and 2004, I want to say. But, uh, you know, they were doing a film festival. I think one of the biggest films they were going to show is uh, Neil Young's movie, which uh, wasn't that great from what I heard. But um, they had a lot of films they were showing, and we finally got into this film festival, which was just, you know, really great because... You know, a lot of really prestigious films and directors were being featured, and, and there was Sinner, and uh, we had a, a press uh, screening for the film uh, for members of the press to come. And they decided they wanted to do the press screening at 10 o'clock in the morning. Or, you know, probably like early in the morning, but I want to say about 9 or 10 o'clock. And... Um, which is a terrible idea when you think about it, because people don't want to go see a movie at 10 o'clock in the morning and you know, go out to a theater at that time. But again, we figured we wouldn't get that many people there. We had a full house. We had writers like Nick Tosh's. We had uh, people from all different uh, newspapers and uh, magazines. Uh, sitting in for this film and they were just stunned because I don't really think they even did one for any of the other films really or if they did it wasn't that well attended um I remember the screening ending and there was like a dead silence in the room and a few people kind of you know started to clap and all that but for the most part there was like this quiet and I remember Nick Tasha's coming up to me afterwards and going, you know, you've got a hell of a lot of nerve to show a film like this at 10 o'clock in the morning, especially to me. And I said, you know, that was a great compliment because this man never gets out of bed before noon. And he got up early to see this film and it blew his mind. Stop right there. Joseph's orphanage would be proud of me to know that I've married such a wonderful person like you. Poppycock! 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 And what is your name? Tweet Twig. Tran Tran! Columbus, how the car? I wish you would keep your ducks in your living room. Had to make forced landing in Pasadena. Oh, it's an emergency. You came to the right man. Film legend Timothy Carey, actor, director, playwright, genius, one of the most uncompromising artists in the history of motion pictures. In 1968, he followed up his directorial debut of The World's Greatest Sinner with the pilot for a children's show about a born loser, Tweet Twig. Tweet is a kind-hearted gardener who rescues animals, is married to terrible Tess, and is the only male member of the old ladies Don't Drop a Stitch Knitting Club who knit clothes for animals and roll about town on roller skates. The pilot was called 
tweets Ladies of Pasadena, and it was rejected by the networks and put in a vault, never to be seen again. Now, Timothy Carey returns in the first animated show of its kind, resurrecting the character of Tweet Twig for children to enjoy. Meet Tweet Twig and his colorful friends, Tessie, the 400-pound ex-British wrestling champ, Captain Tweet's sailorman father, who left him as a young child, Mr. Albacore, his pestering landlord, Mrs. Drip Drop, Mrs. Grouch, Mrs. Flip Flop, and the kindly old ladies of the Drone Drop a Stitch Knitting Club, and meet the magical animals who talk to Tweet Twig. 20 hours of undeveloped negative film have sat in a vault over 40 years, largely forgotten, until now. See the vision of Timothy Carey and experience his love for children, animals, and people of all ages. And experience the warmth, whimsy, and fun of Tweet Twig. Now for the first time ever in a new animated series. It is better to give than to receive. Coming soon from Absolute Films. Writer or author? I'm not an author, author. I guess. Let's say, let's say. No, because authors write books and pub and writers write write scripts and stuff. Right. So, so, publicist and writer. Okay, good. Does that sound good? Sounds perfect. We can always change. It's just a working. It's a working title. It's okay. Place to start from. All right. Working title. It's a working title. Always start with a working title because then you grow from that. That that gives it a life. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's start from the beginning. What? got you interested in Timothy Carey? Timothy Carey. You know, I've always been a fan of movies. And I saw this guy. I'm going to scratch that. Let me start all over again. You can do that as many times as you want. Yeah. That, that question kind of threw me off a little bit. Okay. There's no right answer. It's whatever you want to say. We're yeah. Have, I got a bunch of them. Well, I first found out about Timothy Carey when I was watching a movie. And I seem to think that, from what I remember, the movie wasn't all that good. But there was this one actor in the film that stood out. I mean, he was like a real character. He was really strange. He wasn't doing what all the other actors were doing. And there was something about this guy that was fascinating and disturbing at the same time. And that was Timothy Carey. And I didn't even know it at the time. Who was this guy? But then I started to find out about, you know, movies that he made. And... There wasn't a single movie that he was in that wasn't incredibly strange. And I remember reading a magazine, a music magazine, and somebody put this little tiny blurb in it that said, The World's Greatest Sinner, uh, written by Timothy Carey, uh, one of the greatest rock and roll films ever made. Um the f most favorite film by the group The Cramps. And I said, oh, I got to check this film out. I got to figure, I got to find this thing. And you couldn't find it because at the time there wasn't any internet. There wasn't any way to look up somebody online and just type a few words in. This was back in the 80s. So what to do? 
I looked up film books. I looked up uh, books in the library. And there was nothing about this guy, nothing at all. Nobody had ever heard of him, except for maybe a few people that saw him in some films like Beach Blanket Bingo or Paths of Glory. But very little was known about this guy, about his story, about where he came from. And I had to find this film. And wherever I went, to my video store or in magazines, in the back of magazines, I would write, I would ask people. Nobody had a copy of this film, so I was really determined to get it. I wanted to see this movie at all costs. It took me years. And then I finally started phoning up all the last names of Carrie in the uh, phone book. Uh, calling up operators, asking them to, uh, to look up names. And finally... I tracked down uh, Timothy Carey's son, Romeo. And the first thing he wanted to know was who the hell I was and how did I get his phone number. And then when I told him I was interested in the movie and I wanted to see it, he wouldn't give it to me because he was suspicious. And I said, oh, now I really want to see this film. And it took a long time. And part of me was like, you know, every time you really want something and then you get it, it's disappointing. You know, it's never the way you imagine it. And that's been the story my whole life. So I thought, I've got to see this film, but maybe it's not as great as everybody makes it out to be. And I finally saw a copy of it. It was like 10th generation bootleg. Washed out, grainy, faded. It was the best experience of my life. It was more than I ever even expected it to be. I watched that film three times straight, back to back. I spent an entire afternoon in my house watching this movie over and over on my VCR. I mean, it was a revelation. This guy really, really nailed it. And to this day, I've never had that kind of experience with a movie in my life. I've never, ever, ever gone to a film with high expectations and had them surpassed. And the best part of it was, I felt like I was part of this little club. Nobody had this film. Nobody had seen it. Nobody had even heard of it. It was like my little secret. And, uh, man, that film is something. It's the only film from the moment it starts to the end credits that just completely breaks down every single norm that you know about movies. And everything about that film was perfect. And it's got its flaws, that film, I mean, technically, it's got its flaws. It's, it's, there's certain things about it that aren't perfect. But that's what makes it even more brilliant. You watch that film, and you would never even dare think about changing a single frame or, or, or altering it in any way because the intent behind that film was absolutely amazing. Here was a guy who went and decided one day to make a movie completely by himself, outside of a studio system, with his own money, 
and with his friends and people that he found everywhere else with no consideration whatsoever about commercial success. He was going to make this thing in the 1950s and he was going to attack religion, he was going to attack the media, he was going to attack music, he was going to attack every single taboo and he was going to do it his way and the film just completely was so off the charts that to this day nobody I think has ever had the balls to make a film like that in their lives nobody and today we take it for granted people make their own films with video cameras and and all this technology and stuff like that but think about the era that this film was made an era of the 1950s where church-going Americans that worshipped God and listened to their leaders and didn't do anything to challenge authority and, you know, was all safe and clean and, you know, Ozzy and Harriet. To make a movie like this and then to show it to people and stuff like that, I mean, you would have gotten run out of town. You would have gotten hanged. They would have shown up at your door with pitchforks for doing something like this. The most blasphemous film that I could possibly think of. And it was made over the course of so many years in the late 50s. That is absolute genius. That's what Timothy Carey is. And um, he did not want you to feel comfortable. He did not want you to feel like you knew what was going to happen next. He purposely, through his audiences a curveball in every in every way you saw him on 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 the film you thought that they either let somebody out of an insane asylum or you know they found somebody on the street that was like a madman but you know what he knew what he was doing he knew what he was doing he wasn't going to play the usual hollywood game he wasn't going to listen to what others said. He was going to do it his way, and he was going to catch you off guard because that's what life is all about. That's what life is. It's not scripted and perfect and clean and with a nice happy ending at the end. You don't know what's going to happen right around the bend, and he made sure that you felt that when you were watching his films, all of them. And he would inject his own persona and his own personality and his own way of doing things. And that's what makes him such a genius in my view. Um, most films, all films are made by committee. They're all made by committee. You look at any film that's made by the studios and stuff, you've got a whole line of people that all have to agree on it, that have to put their two cents in. Not Timothy Carey, not with his films. World's Greatest Sinner, that was his baby, and he was going to do it his way, and nobody was going to tell him how to make it. And when you watch it now, think about the fact that it's the one man that made that film, the one lone wolf that decided to pour his money, his heart, and his energy into this thing at a time when nobody would even have the guts to do it. That's what makes this film special. That's why I needed to see it when I did. What about tweets? Tweets. 
Now, tweets is something else because I found out about tweets when I watched Sinner and I saw these little clips of this thing. Tweets Ladies of Pasadena. Again, here's a guy who could have been a big star, could have been in The Godfather, decided, I don't want to be in The Godfather. I want to make tweets. So he gives up working for Francis Ford Coppola in a Godfather movie to create a television pilot and show about a dim-witted gardener who talks to animals, works for a bunch of old ladies in a sewing circle that roll around on roller skates, and their purpose in life is to clothe the naked animals of the world. And you have all this crazy stuff going on. It's like Dr. Doolittle on acid. And again, making it himself with his own hands. And who comes up with this kind of stuff? Who comes up with this kind of stuff? You've got goats and chickens. You've got women rolling around in roller skates that look like they're in their 90s. You've got a 400-pound wrestler from England. You've got an old man who's his father who's a sailor. You've got an Arab sheik. Where does this stuff come from? And when you look at this thing, you think to yourself, was this guy high? Was he drinking? Did, was this guy, like, inebriated? I mean, was he, like, chemically altered? No. He didn't do any of that stuff. He made this, this pilot of a TV show with his own money. And when you watch it, it's the most incredible thing you've ever seen because it completely flips the idea of Timothy Carey as this dark, sinister guy from Sinner into this lovable, bumbling, you know, kids want to hug him kind of person. And when you watch it, it's like it, it like hits you like a freight train because so much stuff is going on. And the fact that there's so much more of this stuff from the one work print that's sitting in cans, I mean, you know, this is a children's show. This is a, a cartoon. This is, this is absolutely incredible. And it's not like a copycat derivative of anything that's ever been done. I mean, the closest thing would be Dr. Doolittle, and that is the most boring film I've ever sat through. One of them, anyway. Um, I mean, this guy was absolutely out there, but in a good way, because he was doing stuff that nobody was doing, and now everybody does it, and nobody even thinks twice about it, but where did it come from? Where was the genesis? What came first, the chicken or the egg? Timothy Carey came first, and then everything else followed after that as far as I'm concerned. You've got this history of movies, and for me, it's like, before Tim Carey, after Tim Carey. That's my benchmark. What did you, what did you think of uh, going to some of the film festivals? What, what kind of experience did you have with that? Wow. You know, I didn't have the luxury of, of being able to see this movie when, uh, when I wanted to first get it, get my hands on it. There were no fe film festivals. There was nothing. 
I had to work to get to see this movie. And I thought, first of all, wow, these people have it so easy now. They get to see it in a theater, and they get to meet the, uh, the actor's son. And I always thought, well, you know what? Probably you'll get a handful of people. But the crowds we got, we got so many people coming in to see this film. And they wanted to see it, and they knew about it. And when they saw it, they had the same reaction I did. Uh, they were just dumbstruck by it. And um, it was just incredible, the response that we got from people. And the best part of the film for me, watching it in festivals, is trying to figure out how many people are going to stand up and walk out of the theater because they're so offended throughout the course of the film. And that's what makes it great for me. I count how many people are in the theater at the beginning and see how many are left at the end. Because invariably, the themes of the film are going to disturb and offend people to no end. And uh, for a movie that old to still be able to offend people in this day and age, you know, you really hit something really, really like sharp when you do that. Where's the coldest place you've seen the film? Coldest place we saw the film was the uh, Eastman House in uh, Rochester, New York. Traveled up there in a blizzard. They were they, they the blizzard started as I got there, and uh, they got about I don't know three or four feet of snow. I mean, most of the town was just shut down. We thought maybe they should just cancel the screening, but we figured you know we're already there. We may as well go ahead, even if we just watch it ourselves. And I was amazed at how many people showed up. Went to this theater in the middle of a blizzard from far away, miles away, to see the film. They really wanted to see it. I don't think there's any other film that I could think of that, that people would travel and put their lives in danger to see. But, you know, these people wanted it. And, uh, my God, they came out of that theater and they said, you know what? It was worth it. It was worth going out in, in, in this terrible weather to see this because now I'm complete. Now I finally got to see this great film that, that I've only heard rumors about. So, yeah, that was, that was really something. What did you make of um, the opportunity to open up for it at uh, Lincoln Center? Who are some of the people there? And what kind of, what, what kind of set, set the stage for how that, how that, um, how that kind of came about? what it was like to be there, who was there, and what was it like in the end? Well, Lincoln Center wanted to show the film, and, um, you know, that was, that was a big deal because at the time we really hadn't had anything that prestigious and that big. What's your favorite Timothy Carey film besides, besides The World's Greatest Sinner? That's hard. My favorite Timothy Carey film? You know, my favorite Timothy Carey film would be the film that would only have Timothy Carey in it and nobody else. Because every film that he's been in, everybody around him pales so much in comparison to him that it's almost like he's so brilliant and I'm not saying this because I'm trying to, you know, be uh, poetic and uh, blow smoke up somebody's behind. I mean, I'm saying it's because I really believe this, and this is how I really feel, that his 
acting is so amazing that when you watch, you know, Poor White Trash with Peter Graves, it's like, where did they find this guy? You know, it's just, it's just pathetic. Even Paths of Glory, which everybody says is, you know, Kirk Douglas is amazing, but when you think about it, if you look at it, he plays such a stilted character, and he plays it so, you know, straight and so dull. And then you got Timothy Carey there carrying on and, and, and doing all this stuff that it's just very, very hard to think that any of these films, you know, are really up to the level and standard of what he is. So it's very, very difficult, actually, to, to pick a, a film in its entirety and say, this is my favorite film, because it's really his scenes that make me want to watch. And the rest of the film is just kind of like an afterthought. Uh, Minnie Moskowitz, he's in the film the first 15 minutes of the film as Morgan Morgan. After that, I shut it off because I think the rest of the film is horrible. And, um, but I have to say, if I have to pick one, if I have to say which film really, really, you know, nails it for me as far as he's concerned, or I think which film does him the most justice, it would have to be uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Killing. That film is, is uh, it's, it's demented, but it's well done. Um, his acting is superb. He, he really plays uh, 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 a bad guy in, in, a, in an incredible way. And I, I think it's, it's probably one of the few films that uh, wasn't under his control that I'd say has a, a level of excitement that matches him. Uh, when I brought Sandra, my fiance at the time, now my wife, uh, I brought her to, to see a screening of tweets that uh, Romeo had uh, set up for us here at uh, Beverly Hills High School. And my first thought was, you know, she is going to think that I'm out of my mind when I show her this, or she's probably going to hate it because it's so off the wall and bizarre. And at the time, we had just started going out, so I didn't really know her that well and her sensibilities. But we sat there and we watched it, and I kept watching her face, and her face was like very straight deadpan. I couldn't tell from what I was seeing whether she was enjoying it or not enjoying it. And when it was over, I was starting to get ready to apologize to her for, um, for bringing her to this. And she just loved it. She told me it was the most magical, incredible thing that she'd seen. She was so excited watching it, and she wanted to see the rest of it because there's hours and hours and hours of this stuff still in the can. And, uh, well, what can I say? You know, that's, that's uh, solidified our love even more because here I found a woman who can appreciate Timothy Carey in all of his guises. And, uh, yeah, I knew she was a keeper. Sweet. Um, now, what do you, what, what's, what do you, what are we off to now with the, with Sinner? What, what do you, what do you aspire to get, 
to the next level? Well, with Sinner, I mean, uh, I think it's time to really put Sinner in the most elaborate and most uh, deluxe uh, manner possible. And I think a film like Sinner deserves the extra special uh, treatment. So I'm envisioning a box set with uh, an amazing copy of Sinner, restored, crystal clear, best possible version. Uh, also, I would love to see the long version of Sinner that's been sitting in a can that runs close to three or four hours that I've never seen, that I'm dying to. Lots of outtakes. The documentary, The Making of Sinner, which shows a lot of behind the scenes making of. Because unlike other films, we have all the uh, outtakes for this film. And the outtakes are just as fascinating as the actual movie. So you get to really see what it was like to make this thing. And, and you get to see a, a lot of the, you know, the, the places and the people that were involved. And we want to make the box special. So I would love to see some incredible extras added to the box. Uh, some lenticulars of Timothy Carey, where you could actually feel him reaching out at you. Um, we're going to put some, some fun things in there, too. We're going to put the little uh, paste-on goatees so that you can... Uh, feel like uh, God Hilliard when you go out and some buttons and put it all together with uh, a reproduction of lobby cards and a nice hardback book with essays and interviews with people involved in the film and people that have been uh, affected by the film and uh, pictures of call sheets and memorabilia and all kinds of goodies and put it in a nice big black box signed by Romeo Carey, personalized, limited edition, because, uh, you know, there are certain people that, that should get their hands on this thing. This is what we want to do. We want to make this the Cadillac of releases. So when you get this thing and you open it up, it's going to feel like your birthday, Christmas, and every holiday that you've ever, ever had wrapped up into one. I mean, this is going to be it. This is going to be the real deal. I can't wait to get my hands on it. I know you can't either. What about, what about the Zappa never before heard recordings, the original recordings? Wow. You know, I forgot about that. We've also got all the multi-tracks to the Zappa recordings. Can you imagine? Can you imagine hearing the, the early 19, uh, late 50s, early 60s Zappa music that he did for this film, including stuff that was never even released, that never made it onto the film? I mean, you know, maybe even some snippets of him talking and directing the, uh, the musicians and stuff like that. Wow. Can you imagine that? Would you sell your house for something like that? I mean, you know what? I'm ready to sell all my stuff just so that I can get my hands on this thing. You know? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm excited just talking about it. You know? This is not going to be one of your uh, 
you know, every five years we put out a new anniversary edition of something. I mean, this is, we're talking about the granddaddy of them all. And if you're a big fan, you're, you're going to want this. What would you, if you had the opportunity, you just watched the world's greatest inning, went to a screening, and there was Timothy Carey at the end, what would, what would you have to say to him if you, if you just had that opportunity to walk up to him? Man, if I had an opportunity to see Timothy Carey standing right in front of me after a screening, I think I'd probably just fall on my knees and just kiss his feet and just, you know, thank him for making one of the greatest films ever. I'm sorry I never got to meet the man. I feel like I know him from his work, but you know what? If, if I ever met him, if I ever had a chance to be in his presence, I think I'd probably be speechless. I'd probably just, you know, kiss his ring and, and just, you know, revel in his, uh, in his presence. Beautiful. <laughs> I'm documenting everything. You've got the eyes on me. Yeah, see, I know better than what you, you're... And this is this is going to be a, the final version. Yeah. Not that we can't take from the others. but um, I think I'm going to know a bit more. I'm going to be a lot more in tune this time around. All right, let's start with how do you want your, your name to appear? So the spelling and your... The way you want it to... What, what do you want it to say is the, if you want something underneath it. Um, so Walter, W-A-L-T-E-R, Ochner, O-C-N-E-R? Yeah. Okay, and what do, you, what do you want for your... I don't know, what do you think? I think you... Yeah. Give me a good one. Um, so we're going to start with uh, today's date is May 1st, 2018. We are in... Uh, Beverly Hills with Walter Ochner, and we are doing the, uh, it's got to be the second, is it the second or third recording I've ever done of you? No, I think it's uh, the second. I'll, mark, I'll tell you where we've done them. We did one in uh, New Jersey, somewhere around there, so we sat you down. Where were we in New Jersey? When we watched, uh, when we watched, uh, 